And uh, we're going to end this morning in our teaching series called Saturation. These weeks have been about really the relevance and the practicality of God's presence in our personal lives, in our situation. You know, we started this really back over the 4th of July. We talked about how desperately our nation needed revival. And so we, we, we need to be ever vigilant. I'm stopping the series and we're going to start a new series next week that I've called Embrace the Grace. And we're going to talk about the grace, the empowering grace of God. And I've hearing, I'm hearing a lot of people teach on grace and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not hearing the whole scoop. So you know me, I'm just a stickler on that. So we're going to teach you some amazing things about the grace of God, but we want to make sure we sort of wrap up our series on saturation and about revival. I believe if guys, if you have this screen ready to go, we we've been using Duncan Campbell's definition of what revival is. And he said simply it was a community saturated with God. I think that is probably the best definition you can give. We can talk about the attributes. We can talk about some of the things that happen during a revival. We can talk about what God does in our life. We, 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 we could, we could uh, enumerate uh, an incredible list with regards as to what happens during a revival. But to define it, we simply put it this way. It's a community saturated with God. Which means you and I need to be saturated with God, right? Our region needs to be saturated with God. And of course, our nation and uh, the whole globe needs needs revival um, to introduce what I'd like to share with you this morning out of the book of Jonah I want to tell a story just bear with me um, those of you that know me know that I've done a lot of my study in the area of church history and I'm just I just enjoy history I'm kind of a history buff especially a church history uh, fanatic and most of you have had to endure my stories of of Whitfield and all that he has done, maybe the Wesley brothers as well. Uh, I've talked to you about church history. I realize nobody, I mean, I don't know how many people watch the History Channel. I love the History Channel. I think it's the greatest channel there is on, on cable. And, and my family comes in and they'll say, what are you watching? And I'll say, the History Channel. And they'll go, uh, man, I'm excited, the History Channel. And, and I've shared with you about our city, Charleston. Uh, Charleston. Uh, ostensibly avoided the first great awakening. Uh, Whitfield came to this city. Uh, from what I understand, he was able to speak at a church or two before he finally irritated enough people that they gathered up a posse and they threw him in jail. You can literally go to this city downtown and you can see the old jail that Whitfield was incarcerated in. And uh, some people who had compassion on Whitfield uh, got up his bail and they got him out of town and he ended up starting a church out on John's Island, actually not far from where we'll be establishing our church out there. Whenever I, 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 I refer to this time period in Whitfield's life, I call it his jailed and bailed time period. He, he, he endured opposition for the gospel's sake. The Wesley brothers came here as well. Uh, I've read their journals. They didn't have really great impressions about the city as well. And so these things I have shared. Well, I was on vacation just a couple of weeks ago, and we were coming back. Many of you know I stopped in Chattanooga. Uh, Tyler's, Tyler's girlfriend, I think I can say girlfriend, is, is here. Callie's here. She's from Chattanooga. That was one of the reasons we stopped was to say hi to Callie. We were able to worship at a great church there. 
And afterwards, I was able to uh, meet the speaker. They had a special speaker, and I was able to uh, meet him after service, and we just... Uh, uh, exchanged pleasantries, and he asked where I was from, and I said, Charleston, South Carolina. And instantly, he went into this story about the Anson Street Revival in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, um, he said to me that it was, it was critical in the early days of the Second Great Awakening, or, or Great Awakening. I don't know if it was technically the second, but it was, it was for a Great Awakening in America. And and I'm standing there, and I'm this history buff, and I'm going, I do not remember ever being told this. And, and so he's telling me this story. And so after he was done sharing this story with me, I was just kind of half irritated at myself because I hadn't really, if I'd heard this story, it just wasn't registering. So I went back to my hotel room, and I just started Googling. Hallelujah for Google. So I just started Googling, man. I was trying, and, and I really couldn't find much Googling it. I mean, I'd find these little short snippets. And sure enough, there was an outpouring that happened in Charleston, South Carolina, down on the peninsula on what is known as Anson Street. Anson Street is uh, perpendicular to Market Street. It's actually uh, in between, you know, the First Baptist Church Gymnasium. Many of you probably know instantly where that is downtown. And believe it or not, Anson's Restaurant. There you can't miss Anson Street. And so I, I looked it up, found a little bit about it. And so I got Tracy, I think it was a Sunday or two. I got her in the car and I said, hey, we're going to, let's go down to Anson Street. This is just how I am. So I get her in the car and Anson Street's only one way. You got to go down Anson Street from Market and then turn on Calhoun and come back around on East Bay. And, and, if, and if you're not from here, you're clueless is what I'm telling you, except that everything's one way downtown. And so... So I'm going down Anson Street, and so I'm trying to figure out the locations of what little bit I've been able to, you know, kind of apprehend in this, this whole deal. And, it, and, it's, and it's been very, very difficult to do that. And, and you know, it's typical Charleston. I went by an Episcopal church, a big surprise. And, um, and then I, could, I didn't go but a block down the road, and there's another Episcopal church. You'd think these Episcopals have enough churches. And I said, I remember I said to Trace, and we were right by the Gilliard auditorium. I said, if I were a betting man, I will bet you that one of these Episcopal churches was at one time the Anson Street mission that housed this revival. And as I began to study, I found some interesting things out. I want to tell you about it. You, you like hearing stories? I want to tell you the story. It's 1857, just a few years before the Civil War. There was a Presbyterian pastor by the name of John Gerardo. Pastor Gerardo actually came to the Second Presbyterian Church down on Meeting Street to take over. They asked him to come take over the Anson Street Mission, which again was only about two blocks away. The mission uh, was designated, more or less, to reach out primarily to the black slaves, the African slaves that were resident in Charleston. But interestingly, as I began to study this, and these are some things that I, I don't know that I'd fully comprehended but I'm getting a hold of it more and more, that prior to the Civil War, it really wasn't that unusual for blacks, for Africans, and whites, Anglos, to worship together. It wasn't until after the Civil War that, that hearts hardened and things separated and there was more division, or at least the division we find oftentimes today. But prior to the Civil War, it was not unusual to find both blacks and whites worshiping uh, together. So he comes to this mission about 1857, and, and he's probably there about a year. It's 1858 now. 
And apparently in that mission, the congregation had got a burden to begin to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now get this, this is a Presbyterian mission. I wish sometimes denominations would look again at their history. Because there's some really powerful things that have happened in some churches that wouldn't know Jesus if he walked in the door right now. This was a Presbyterian mission, and this congregation is crying out for an outpouring of God's Spirit. And it was one night at a prayer meeting in 1858, and at this prayer meeting, there were 48 black congregants. There were 12 white congregants. Added up, that means there were 60 people there. And all of a sudden, towards the end of the prayer meeting, Gerardo writes in a journal these words. It says that, he received a sensation as if a bolt of electricity had struck his head and diffused itself through his whole body. For a little while, he stood speechless under a strange physical feeling. He then said to that congregation, the Holy Spirit has come. And he did the only thing he knew to do at that time. He said, we will begin preaching tomorrow evening. And he closed the service with a hymn, dismissed the congregation, came down from the pulpit, the only problem was that nobody left the church. The whole congregation, apparently, had felt the same thing. They remained quietly in their seats, and he realized instantly that the Holy Spirit had not only come to him, but had also taken possession of the hearts of the people. And so he began to exhort them to accept the gospel. And they began to sob softly at first, like the falling of rain, then with deeper emotion to weep bitterly, at times even rejoice loudly, according to the circumstance. It was midnight before anyone wanted to leave. Now, as best as we can ascertain, that revival lasted only about eight weeks. It's interesting, in that eight-week time period, however, thousands of people, listen to me now, in Charleston, South Carolina, there were thousands of people that were saved at that uh, awakening that began to take place. In that eight-week time period, they began to hold services not only at the mission, but as best as I can understand, they did it back at Second Presbyterian as well, that he would preach, Gerardo would preach to nearly 1,500 to 2,000 people every night in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, understand, Charleston wasn't near the size Charleston is today. So when we're talking about 2,000 people in 1858, we're talking about that was some kind of crowd. The church that was built, the mission that was built, actually, you can go down there, and if you go close to the Gilead, you can look across and you'll see a church that's St. John's Reformed Episcopal that's right across from the Gilead Auditorium. That church uh, is about half of what was originally the Anson Street Presbyterian Mission. I'm going to get back to that in just a minute. Now, the reason this was so important is because there was a guy by the name of Jeremiah Lamphier. Some of you may recognize that name. He was a New York City businessman who happened to be in the Charleston area and actually was affected by this revival meeting. In fact, he was so impressed by it all that when he went back to New York, his hometown, there on Fulton Street, he started a noontime prayer meeting with six businessmen. And out of those six businessmen, something began to happen in New York that that started what we now know as that awakening of that particular time period. But it's interesting that Jeremiah Lamphere got 
sort of the residual effect of what had happened here in Charleston before it was taken up to New York City. And, and let me just say that in that awakening time period in America, as best as we can take statistics, one million people that did not know Jesus gave their heart to the Lord in a one-year time period. One million people in America. Just to show you what revival can do, there was a church, I believe it to be a Baptist church in Beaufort, South Carolina. It was during this same time period as the tentacles of revival began to spread that it touched the church, this church in Beaufort, and in a three-day period, everyone say three days. How many of you know God can do great things in three days? And in three days, that church, listen, baptized. We're talking brand new believers in a three-day time period. 400 people were brought into that little church in a three-day time period. That's amazing, isn't it? See, revival isn't just somebody laying hands on you and you falling on a carpet. I mean, I mean there are great residual effects that take place when God shows up. Now, here's the interesting part. Gerardo had his opposition. I'll guarantee you, it doesn't matter whether you're Whitfield, Gerardo, or whatever name, if you have a heart after God, you're going to face opposition. He had death threats against him. Arsonists literally burned the mission down. That's why only about half of it, the brick portion, still remains at the back of St. John's Reformed Episcopal Church. They burned it down. Now the question is, why would people do that? Now listen, this is so important because I talked to you about the practical nature of a move of God. You know what happened? Because there were so many people receiving Jesus, and, and I want especially uh, my African friends to listen to me carefully. Listen to me. That Gerardo knew that you just couldn't accept Jesus, you had to disciple him. And so he began to disciple the black population here in Charleston, South Carolina. He taught them hymns. He taught them the scriptures. He taught them, I would suspect, the liturgy of that particular church. All sorts of things. And, and what began to happen was, is that the, the slave population or the black population began to read. They began to educate themselves. And they were coming far more aware, far more astute. And actually, that was against the law in South Carolina in those days that you could not teach an African slave or a black person to read. That was against the law. And so Gerardo was literally uh, violating the law. And, and, and he was challenged on that point. And basically, he said, I'm not violating the law. I'm just I'm teaching hymns and, and teaching the scripture. He knew what he was doing, though. I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. And it caused great opposition. That's why, let me tell you this, that wherever Christianity goes, it pulls people up and out. I'll just say it out loud. Wherever, wherever Islam goes, it oppresses people and keeps them down. You look at Christian nations and you look at Muslim nations and I ask you, where do you want to live? And everybody's mad at Christians. Why is that? Because there's a devil who doesn't want people to be set free by the truth. And so the elite, white, rich folk of Charleston all of a sudden were once again seized by fear. I am amazed at how much fear exists in this city. I know people say they love God and I know people go to church and I know we're called the holy city, but we are full of fear. And every time God moves, fear seizes us. And that fear seized the elites of Charleston. And they stopped it and they shut it down and they burned the mission down. And just like they did to Whitfield a hundred years prior to that, they did it to Pastor Gerardo as well. And it ostensibly shut down what God was wanting to do in this our city. 
Can I share this with you? Fear and faith will not exist together long. Mm-mm. One of them will eventually win. One will eventually have dominion. And, and, and all of this, I just started to study, and it was just so wonderfully interesting to me. But you may ask, well, pastor, is there a point to all of this? And where does Jonah fit into all of this stuff? And can I just say that God sends revival for broader purposes. Now, I realize, hear, hear me what I'm saying, because if you don't hear what I'm saying, you'll miss what I'm trying to say. I believe that God loves the individual. He wants to save individuals. And, and he looks at us as individuals and he wants to work in our life. So please do not misunderstand that that's a part, certainly a major important part of when God's spirit moves in the earth. But there are even broader purposes beyond that. Do you understand that in 1859, you're just a few years before the Civil War, correct? Now, now think about this in broader terms. This is what I like to do with history. I like to think in broader terms. I know, I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, then when George Whitfield was here in the 1700s, that God used Whitfield in his itinerant ministry to go from colony to colony to colony all through the East Coast. He rode his horse, he preached to thousands and tens of thousands, and he went all through the colonies preaching the gospel. You know what God did with, with George Whitfield? What he did was he used him as a spiritual rope to bind together 13 independent colonies in order that they would unify because they would have to because they were fixing to face the most giant superpower the world had ever known found in England. God was literally preparing our nation by the preaching and movement of Whitfield to unify us in order that we could stand in one of our most challenging hours. And can I just share this with you as well? I've often wondered that if the awakening would have come from Whitfield to this city, I've often wondered if we could have avoided the siege of, of Charleston by the British. But instead, this city wrote out the Revolutionary War under captivity. See, this is how practical it becomes. Nobody wants a move of God, but at the same time, nobody wants to be sieged by the British as well. I want you to consider this. In 1858, God sends another revival to this city. We're only a few years from the Civil War. Where were the first shots of the Civil War? Oh, Charleston, South Carolina. Could it be that God was trying to soften the hearts of a city that he could see, you know, the end from the beginning? And he was trying to soften the hearts of a city in order to spare us as a nation from losing over 700,000 of our brothers and sisters in the most bloodiest conflict that we had ever faced. As a nation, he was trying to do something in our hearts to melt our, our prejudice and our racism. He was doing something in our hearts to melt our arrogance and our pride. He was trying to do something in our hearts to spare us from sending our children and our children's children off to a war that in all likelihood they didn't come back to. God was trying to spare us from that. But we don't want God. And when we say we don't want God, then we can't be spared from the impending judgment or the doom that he knows is on the horizon. Listen, it's not God's fault that there was a civil war. It was the hearts of men 
who are arrogant and prideful and could not for a moment humble themselves under the mighty hand of God and avert something that should have happened. Listen, I understand when you start talking about this stuff in the deep south, it's like you're crawling up grandpa's tree and shaking his heritage. I don't give a flip. You're about your granddad. Love him. Honor him. He's dead. God bless him. But I'm telling you, God is wanting to do things in our lives that will spare us from hurt and heartache and trouble. He's trying to do this. And that Anson Street Revival, if it says nothing else to me, says that it was God's, God's moment for us to not experience the, the wrath. We call it the wrath of God, but really it's just the wrath of the earth. Because God was wanting to spare us from that. And, and, and I just started to think about why God would want to send our nation revival today. I understand that America doesn't want revival. Charleston, our own city, is resistant to it. Nobody, when I say nobody, I'm not, I don't mean everybody. But I understand that there are a lot of people that don't see the need for a move of God or a revival or, or a moving of the Spirit. I get it. People don't want to be bothered. They, they, they want to go on with their life. They don't want all the the upheaval or the challenges that come with just God moving like that. And then they're just, just leave well enough alone. I go to church. I give God his due. I, you know, we live in the holy city. I, I, I do all of that. And we don't understand that if we don't see God move, there's something over the horizon that we don't know. And we're so arrogant to think that somehow we can avoid it. We just, we just crank up more government. We just crank up more ideas. We just get us a new Nobel Peace Prize winner. We just get us somebody from Harvard or from Yale or from Cornell. We just get us a smart scientist. We just get us this and that and we can avoid it. There's coming a moment, friends, that, that we, we will have the best that men has to offer and it won't stop what's just around the corner. And God's trying to say to us now in 2010 that something is just down the road, I believe a few years, that if we don't see God move, Hearts are going to hurt. Lives are going to be shaken. You say, you're just doom and gloom. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get you ready. It doesn't have to be that way. I literally, as I began to think about this, I thought about how these two opportunities for our city had been missed. And then I started to ask myself the question, have we missed... All our chances? I mean, how many chances does God give you? Did we squander some opportunities? God's tried through Whitfield. He tried through Pastor Gerardo. He's tried to, to reach our, our city. Maybe he just said, you know what? I'm done with Charleston. You know, I'll just go on down to Savannah. Is God done with us as a region? I mean, if I were God, and again, I can just remind you that you can say amen at this point. That if I were God, I might say, Charleston, you had a couple of chances. We're just going to go try somewhere else. But I found good news. Now to Jonah. Halen, Jonah. Have you got Jonah chapter 3? It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach. To it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. You might want to underline that exceedingly great city. A three days journey in extent. 
Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. How many of you know that there was something coming to Nineveh right around the corner? But in verse 5, it says, so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covering himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd, flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then the good news in verse 10, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. He did not do it. The God, isn't it good that he's the God of a second chance? I'm personally glad he's got a third chance in there. Some of you are kind of happy he had about 25 chances in there. Most of us know the story of Jonah, a reluctant prophet told by God to tell a city that it was on borrowed time. The city's evil had finally reached God's intolerable zone on his judgment meter. And the Lord chose Jonah to go give them the news. Jonah hightails it when he hears that out of town. And he boards a ship for a cruise because he does not want to be the messenger that has to tell Nineveh this news. I guess Jonah thought God didn't do cruises. As he's on this cruise, the storm arises. The crew, through a series of events, figures out that God's mad, but not so much at them, but rather at one of their passengers. And they figure out it's Jonah. So they do what any compassionate group of marine merchants would do. They toss him overboard. And that fixed their predicament. Now the story tells us that at that time a great fish. Now I know that many people say it was a whale and it well could have been a whale. All we know from the scriptures is that it says a great fish. People have asked me about that. They said, well, it's a whale and a whale can't do this and that. And I said, well, who said it was a whale? I mean, for all we know, God brought a fish up from the deep. And it was just a fish they'd never seen before. I don't know. But a great fish, the scripture says, swallows Jonah. And while he's in the belly of this great fish, he gets a three-day seminar on obedience. I should have titled the message something like, you can run, but you can't hide. Or how about... How about this? We can do this the easy way. You know, you know why we laugh, though, at all of this? It's because God has some fish ready for you and me. If we don't decide to obey him and obey him right away. And in those three days in this seminar, in the belly of the fish, Jonah finally yells, uncle, I give. I'll obey. And the Lord has the fish, the story says it, it vomits him up 
on dry land. You see, that's what I think that's cool about that story. It's because it's not like the fish just stuck his tongue out and let Jonah walk out on the beach. No, 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 no. The Holy Ghost wanted to be sure we understood that the fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. And this is basically where we pick up the story. Now, before I just go into a couple of things I want to mention, I'd just like to say that I can identify with Jonah to some extent. There are times that you don't like where God's sending you. Can you say amen? You don't like where God's sending you. I, I, I've been, you don't like where God has you. You don't like what God is asking you to say. You don't like what God is asking you to do. It doesn't take much to be convinced that even God may be confused about his own will. I've been before the Lord and, and have said, Lord, you are obviously confused about your own will here. Because I can assure you that I could pick out a whole lot better place. I could be used way more effectively. We could do it this way. And if you just let me sort of be your chief of staff, we could get this thing worked out. But God does not do that. I can tell you that there was a significant time period in the past for me. Now, this is important. I've, I've told the story before. This is, this is past. It's over. I've been vomited out of the fish. And so I'm, I'm, I'm okay now. But there was a time, I can tell you, I did not like this city. I don't mean I didn't like you. I, I really, I, I've always cared for you and I love you. And I never, you know, I never say never to God anymore. I understand whenever you say never to God, there's something that perks up in the spirit realm. When God hears that never and he says, oh, really? So I never say never to God. But in as much as I have discerned the will of God, this is my life's work. I'm, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. But I want you to know that I didn't come to that 13, 14 years ago. There was a time that I did not like this city. I'll say it out loud. I'll say it again. I didn't like this city. I had experienced pain in the city, heartache, injustice, unfairness. I didn't like it. I did, I'd been in the paper, not just for something good, but for something that wasn't quite accurate. And my attitude was, I'm done preaching to this city. I'm done with it. And for all I care, God, destroy it because I'm out of town. Now, some of you have felt this way. You may have felt this way. You know, you may not be a preacher, but you may have felt this way because you got transferred to this city. And you didn't want to come to Charleston and you didn't you didn't want to do what whatever it is that you were assigned to do. Or, or maybe you didn't want to be in the job you have or maybe you don't want the relationship you got. And, and, and hear me, I'm not saying there aren't legitimate times where God transitions you to other things. But truth is, God has called you to be where you're at at this time. And you've had feelings just like I've had feelings that I don't like it. I don't like what God's asking of me. I don't like where I'm at. I don't like what this is all about. I didn't sign up for this trip. Somebody told me that Jesus always was just good and great and, and always let me have my way. And somehow or another, this whole thing's got convoluted. And I remember that I was at that place. I was, I was done. I was just, I was done, 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 done. And, and I remember I went off. I went off to Bethany World Prayer Center and, and basically told Trace, I'm going to go to this conference and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to get refreshed and refueled and refired. And then I'm going to go back and I'm done. I bet you didn't know there was an anointing for done. And that's what I was crying out. Give me the anointing to be done. 
And I remember I went and sat through the, the wonderful uh, conference and the presentation. They always do such an amazing job. And you've heard me tell the story how I was sitting in this room with probably 5,000 pastors. I was probably, I don't know, 10 rows up from, from the main area. And, and Joel Stockstill was walking back and forth, as Pastor Joel often does. And he stops right in front of my section and he puts his finger out there. And it didn't have anything to do with his sermon either. I mean, it was just one of those moments where he just stopped and he looks in this section. And to this day, probably if I asked Pastor Joel about it, he would not remember the moment. He would not probably say he was looking at me, but it felt as if all of a sudden time stopped. The lights went out. There was a spotlight on me and his finger, which was 10 rows away, suddenly grew about 40 feet. And it was about that close to my nose. He didn't know I was there. He didn't know what was going on. He wouldn't have known me from Adam in that place. And all of a sudden he stops in the middle of a message that had nothing to do with what he was about ready to say. And he just stopped and it was the voice of God to me. And it was this, God has given you an assignment. You're preparing to run. You need to go back. And the Lord says, finish your assignment. Does anybody around me know that's me? Because that's how I felt. Like he pulled me out right there. And that conference, listen to me, that conference was the belly of the fish for me. And I had to come back on that plane. And when I got off at Charleston International Airport, it was as if I was vomited back on the land. That's how I felt. Just like Jonah sat there at the shores of Nineveh going, well, I went through the seminar. So, Lord, I'm going to obey you. Well, here I am at the shores of Charleston. Well, Lord, I went through the seminar. I don't want to be back in the fish. I certainly don't want you mad at me. You've already proven you can kill me. Some of you right now, listen to me. I'm just stopping here. This is, some of you are in the belly of a fish right now. I don't know what it is. It could be your job assignment. It could be ministry assignment. It could be a career. It could be, it could be anything in your house. I don't know. But right now, when, when you're in the belly of the whale right now. And, and you're wondering why God has you there. And he's giving you a seminar in obedience. And it's time you just said, yes, sir. And let God vomit you out of the belly of that situation back on shore. I'll just bet Jonah was thrilled to see Nineveh. Don't you? I mean, you're in the belly of a whale for three days. I'd be happy to see daylight. But it's interesting that as he comes back on shore, instantly out of the belly of that whale, he gets some revelation about Nineveh that we need to get as well about our life, about our city, about our nation. Let me tell you, when, 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 I, was finally, when I was finally vomited back up on shore, there was something that began to happen in me. There was something that began to break. There was something that I began to understand. There was some revelation that be, became really just real to me that was never there before. You know, that's the interesting thing about revelation. Revelation is really information you may know, but there comes a moment you finally get. Some of you know a lot. You just don't get it yet. And I'm telling you, God has a church that's full of information, but has no revelation. We know the stories of the cross and what God can do and all of this, but we haven't got that revealed in our hearts yet. 
And I remember at that moment that there was something that unveiled to me and was unfolded to me. And I just want to share a couple of things with you and and bear with me because because I I want you to take some of the things that I learned and I want Holy Spirit help your people now. I want you to apply it to your life and, and to our life corporately together. The first thing is that Jonah finally began to understand. Number one is he found out that Nineveh was a city that was important to God. There's a phrase in chapter 3, verse 3 that I told you about. It says there that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. In the margins of my study Bible, it tells me that the Hebrew there could literally be translated that, that Nineveh was a city, literally translated, a city that was important to God. Isn't that interesting? Because there's all sorts of exceedingly great cities. But the question is that this was a city that was important to God. There was something in the heart of God that, yes, it was irritated. He was irritated with Nineveh. There's no doubt he's ready to, he's ready to just, just blow it up. But at the same time he was irritated with it, there was something in his heart that considered that city important. And I believe that's one of the reasons why God gives to people second, third, fourth, fiftieth, fiftieth chances. There's something in that person or there's something in that city that's important to Him. He can see beyond what we see. He can, he can know beyond what we can know. And, and He has purposes in that. And is God at times irritated with what He sees? The answer is yes. But with that, there is a compassion in the heart of God that as he sees it, he realizes there's something important that can be done if that person or if that region or if that city or if that nation got its heart right with God. I believe God through the years has given our region and our city opportunities. I believe God through the years has given people and persons and individuals opportunities. And oftentimes we just get exasperated, don't we? We're just exasperated. We're exasperated with people. I mean, that's no deep, dark secret. Those of you that have worked with people, how many of you know they'll exasperate you? I've often said ministry would be great if we could get rid of people. But how many of you know Jesus died for people? He loves people. We've got to begin to see with what he sees. And some of you are at a workplace and you're exasperated with all your co-workers and you're fed up with them and you're no longer praying for them. In fact, if you pray, you're just saying, God, plague them. Send disease on them. That's how you feel. Folks, something in the heart of God beats when it looks, I believe, at our region and our city. And he says, there's something important to me here that I refuse to let go. And there's something that was quickened in my heart concerning this region. And once you get the heart of God in this matter, suddenly the compassion will flood in and the mercy will flood in. And yes, you'll still be irritated on occasion, but then suddenly the eyes of God arise in your heart and you begin to understand that God sees something important in this city. I'm telling you, Charleston will not escape the Spirit of God. It will not. Honey, I promised I wasn't going to yell. There I yelled. Nineveh was a city that was important to God. Your workplace is a place that's important to God. Your relationships are relationships that's important to God. 
Hear me now. I know you don't want to go there. You don't want to go to the family reunion and you don't want to be, you don't, you just, I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. Hey, get ready for your seminar. There's a seminar God has just for you. Secondly, I just, I just got this. Nineveh had never been given a timetable. It's interesting that as, as he begins to speak to the city, he says to the city, Jonah, he says, in yet 40 days. He tells them that in 40 days, God's going to do something. In fact, he's going to allow their enemies to come in and they're going to be overrun. And, and, and so literally, Jonah looks at Nineveh and he says, you guys, you're on borrowed time. Borrowed time. And suddenly when, when that word came out, yet 40 days, there was something that began to resonate in the population, in the hearts of the people. Now, I cannot say, nor will I say, that somehow or another there's 40 days left for our city. I'm not saying that. I, I don't know that to be true. I haven't got a word of the Lord on that one. But I can tell you this. We are on borrowed time. We're on borrowed time. We all know that we're on borrowed time with regards to hurricanes. We all know that we're on borrowed time with regards to earthquakes. I mean, we're way overdue on that one. We're on borrowed time as a nation with regards to our economy and terrorism. Do I have to go down the list of all of the things that are staring us in the face and it's screaming at us? We are on borrowed time. I don't know that we've ever thought at any moment that somehow there's a timetable for our city and for our nation. Revival is essential. And time is of the essence. The clock of God's patience is running out. I've often said, you've heard me say this, God is long-suffering. Indeed, He is. But He's not eternally suffering. His patience is amazing. Oh, so long. But understand, God is not eternally patient. There's a time that the grace is expired. There's a time that the mercy is no more. There's a moment when he says, yet 40 days. And, and, and finally, he got a revelation. Jonah got a revelation that time was of the essence. Folks, I love you. I love our church. I love being here. I love my city. I was riding around the other day with my wife and said, you know what? I really like being here now. As, as, as much as I hated it, I'm really liking it now. And, and I can say all those wonderful things. But folks, we got to get a handle spiritually that, that time is of the essence. That means we've got to pray more fervently. We've got to obey more quickly. Is that, is that proper? Can I use an L-Y with a more? Amen. All right. My wife's working on my grammar. Hallelujah. That must have been anointed. God doesn't have bad grammar, does He? So when I say, what do you think? I, that wasn't the Holy Ghost. All right. We're on borrowed time. And so what we do, we've got to get busy about. It's now's the time. Today's the day. This is our moment. It's not, don't wait for next week to get praying. Now's the time to get praying. Don't wait for next week to be obedient. Now's the time to be obedient. Don't wait until you're old and gray and think you have time. This is the moment. Let me tell you, there's going to be a yet 40 days. And, and there's going to be a moment when these things happen. And you're going to be glad for your obedience 40 days prior. He got a revelation. They had a timetable. Number three, it was interesting that Nineveh knew more than it was letting on. I found that fascinating. I was just thinking because as, as Jonah spoke to the city, it says that the city instantly knew what to do. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth and ash. The king did much the same thing. 
He repented in sackcloth. In fact, he even got the animals involved in it, it looks like here. He says, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. It's hard to believe. It'd be like me going home and looking at Pugin and saying, come here, Pugin. You and me, we're going to repent right now. Put a sackcloth over the puppy. Hallelujah. I believe puppies will be in heaven. I don't care what you say. I have people come and they, they want to have this big biblical discussion. And I look at them and say, don't tell me. Just don't tell me. I don't want to hear it. La, 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 la. It says the lion will lay down with the lamb. That's what it says. I believe there's animals in heaven. That's what I believe. So you just. Anyway, that has nothing to do with Nineveh. Except that the animals even repented. The animals repented. Now, no one rose up and said, well, what do we need to do, Jonah? What do we need to do? Tell us what to do. Nobody said that. They instantly, or at least intuitively, knew what to do. Can I just share this with you? This is so important. And I've, I've come to this conclusion because I've wrestled with this oftentimes, but now I think I'm, 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 I'm landing. I don't think people are nearly as dumb as we think they are. I think when they sin, they know they're sinning. And I think when they're running from God, they really do know they're running. I don't think they're as ignorant as we think they are. I don't think we can say, oh, oh, God bless them. They're just so ignorant. They just don't know any better. They do too know better. You know that. You work with your kids. Your kids know better. Amen. Sure they do. There's enough of God in America, I'll assure you. I'll assure you. Th they know more than they're letting on. And I'll, I'll tell you, our city and our nation knows more than it's letting on. They're not ignorant. They are not naive. If, if this nation or our city or anybody stands before God, they aren't going to be able to stand there and go, well, you know, I just didn't know God. I just, you know, you know me. I'm just dumb. And God's going to say, you ain't that dumb. Nineveh knew more than it was letting on. Our city knows more than it's letting on. And we've got to begin to, what this means is we've got to start praying correctly for our city. See, for some of us, we are so convinced that anybody who runs around with the label Christian must be one. I'm just telling you, Christian doesn't mean anything more in our society than it would be, you know, male or female. I mean, I'm just telling you, it is an innocuous word that we just flop around on everybody. If you're not Jewish and you're not Hindu and you're not Muslim, then you must be a Christian. Ah, wrong answer. And it's time we got serious and understand that there are people who are backslidden and away from God. And I don't care if they say they love the Lord, then you start loving him because first John says that how can you say you love him yet you do not do what he says? See, this is what revival is about. This is what was going on in Nineveh. These people knew what to do. They, they probably feared God, but they certainly didn't practice that fear. Then finally, number four, God had another chance for Nineveh. This is the good news. And to Nineveh's credit, they took advantage of this window. I believe there's yet another revival for our city. I believe there's another chance. Listen, I don't know who you are this morning, and I, I, you know, I know a lot of you this morning. I can scan the crowd, and I can recognize many of your faces. Some of you I might not know as well, and there may be some I don't know at all. But can I just say this? Here's the good news today, and that is there is another chance, and today is one of those chances. Today's one of those chances. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he pastored a, a church that R.T. Kendall pastored. Westminster, yes, in London, England. 
This is what he writes. He said, the church is not meant always to be in a state of revival. But it is also to do the ordinary, everyday work. But, underscored, some remember this fact so well that they forget that the church is meant to have some special occasions too. That's what revival is. You see, God honors those that are faithful and they're true. Those that walk His purposes out when, when there's not much excitement to it. God smiles when He sees His people just arise and they're diligent and they're tenacious and they're obedient and they do it because that's what they do and they love Him. And it doesn't matter if there's any goosebumps or reward or attaboys or anything else. They just, you know, God, God loves that and He honors that. But the thing we've forgotten in the church is this, and that is there are moments of special occasion where God moves and something happens that just ignites us with fervency again. That's why the Scripture says that they will volunteer freely in the day of God's power. I understand people volunteer because they want to be faithful and they just want to be servants, and that's wonderful. But when God, when God moves in amazing ways, there's something inside of us that just says, yes, this is what I'm linking up to. And today, can I just share this today? We have a generation, probably at least two generations, maybe more, that have never experienced a genuine outpouring. I mean, my household, I have, I have children, and I don't know that my children have ever experienced a genuine outpouring. I don't know that these young people that gather here, if they've ever experienced a genuine outpouring. Now, they've enjoyed the fruits of the Spirit-filled life because we worship passionately and we believe in the gifts of the Spirit and we have contemporary music and all the things that we do. And they get to enjoy the fruits of all that we had labored for for years. And that's a wonderful thing. Glad I can provide that for them. And that is important. But how many of you know that I want my children to be birthed not just in not just in faithfulness and obedience, as important as those are, but I want them to be birthed in the moving of God's Spirit. Because you get in the Spirit of God and you're forever changed. I mean, you, you taste of God just one time and you are messed up for life. For life. For life. So, so do I want my children to be faithful? Absolutely, positively. Will I, will I assist my kids in being faithful? Oh, you can count on it. But if they got one taste of God's manifested presence, they wouldn't need me to set the alarm. If they got one taste of the moving of the Spirit of God, we wouldn't have to make them set up front. If they got one taste of the, the Spirit of God, you couldn't keep them away from the house of God. I'm telling you, we need a special occasion. And I'm done with this. In Yosemite National Park, between the years of 1872 and 1968, almost 100 years, there was a place called Glacier Point. It was the tip of a cliff. Beneath that cliff, there was a campground that was created that was called Camp Curry. And for almost 100 years, every night in Yosemite National Park, up at the top of Glacier Point, some forest rangers would create a great bonfire and they would let that fire burn until the ashes of the wood became just glowing red embers. And then at dusk, right at the brink of nightfall, 
Every night for almost 100 years, there would be a, a nightly routine that would happen that was called the firefall. And somebody would stand at the bottom of Glacier Point at Camp Curry, and they would look at the top and it would, they would say, this is Camp Curry to Glacier Point. Do you hear me? Glacier Point would respond, this is Glacier Point. We hear you, Camp Curry. Camp Curry to Glacier Point. Is, is everything ready? Glacier Point. Everything's ready. Camp Curry would then speak to the top of Glacier Point and these words would come out. They would say then, let the fire fall. And those rangers would take those red hot coals that had been burning through most of the day and they would literally pour those coals over the edge of the cliff and you can go to Wikipedia and they have pictures in there and you can literally see what that, that river of fire looks like as you would begin to watch a never-to-be-forgotten firefall. It literally looked like a red river of fire that would start, start at the top of the cliff and it would run interrupted to the bottom there in the valley at Camp Curry. You know what God's looking for? God, God's waiting for a people that will arise in intercession and look up to the heavens and say, Lord, is everything ready? And the voice of the Lord would come back and say, everything's ready. And He's waiting for us to say something to the effect, and Lord, let, let the fire fall. And at that moment, in his own church, there will be a never-to-be-forgotten experience of God literally pouring out himself amongst us in amazing and remarkable ways. Doing what needs to be done. Correcting what needs to be corrected. Loosing what needs to be loosed. Delivering what needs to be delivered. Reaching what needs to be reached. But are we ready to be saturated? Saturated in His presence. How about it? Let's all stand, can we? Would you stand with me?